following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, today is the first Sunday in Lent, one of the high holy seasons of the Christian calendar. It's something that we, we observe each year at Artisan, but I know that many of you are new here, and a lot of you who aren't new may want a refresher on this, so I'm just going to give you a real quick um, orientation to what Lent is. Lent is a, very simply a traditional season of fasting and reflection and preparation for Easter, but it's also... Uh, a season of repentance, of turning away from sin. And this year, probably more than in previous years, we at Artisan are going to be focusing closely on that third idea of repentance. So admitting our part in the brokenness of the world, trusting to the grace of Jesus to redeem not only the world as a whole, but each one of us, individual people who inhabit it. So the subtitle of our series is The Problem Lies With Me. And this is sort of a parallel to when we did Advent. The Christian year starts in November with Advent, and our theme for Advent was a world in need of a Savior, focusing on the whole world's need for Jesus. This year, uh, for Lent, we're, we're really bringing it closer to home. The problem lies with me. Whatever else might be going on in the world around you, whatever other sin might be uh, causing harm and problems, uh, whatever, as I have, I love this phrase I've used lately, cosmic entropy, you know, the, the, the sin and fallenness of the entire world, whatever may be true about all those things, we're going to, those, those things are, are not things we can really, really address ourselves as much as what is happening in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives, in our actions. Uh, so... The theme for Lent this year is repentance, the problem lies with me. It's, it's pretty heavy stuff, um, but I think that's, that's kind of the point of Lent. So the other thing that uh, Christians have commonly done during Lent is engage more intentionally and deeply in the spiritual disciplines, especially fasting. And uh, here's the great temptation, the great lie uh, that you may be inclined to believe, in which I'm about to disavow you of, you think to yourself, well, um, it's a real shame, but Lent actually started, as, as everybody knows, on Ash Wednesday. And so I, didn't, I haven't been fasting since Wednesday. I didn't think to start on time, so maybe next year. <laughs> right? That is, that is it's, it's amusing, but it's actually a profound lie that is ruining your ability to pursue a deeper spiritual life, not just with fasting and other spiritual disciplines in the time of Lent, but all year round every day, this lie that you are told that if I can't do it 100% correctly right from the beginning, I'm not going to bother with it at all because what's the point? Well, there's a great deal of point. You can start today, you can start tomorrow, you can screw it up on Tuesday and start again on Wednesday. You probably will, and you probably should. So don't believe the lie. That's, that's rule number one for Lenten disciplines. Don't believe the lie um, that, that you, since you didn't start it right on time, there's no point in doing it at all. So I especially want to commend to you the discipline of fasting, and especially if you've never tried it before. Now, if you've never tried fasting before, of course, you don't want to start with a three-day fast, right? Um, start with fasting one meal per week and uh, use that time for prayer and reflection instead of eating. It will 
It will change your life. If you've never done that before, it will change your life. If you're a little bit more experienced and want to do a full day fast, I recommend fasting breakfast to breakfast. Don't fast all three meals on the same day because that actually means you didn't eat all night long and then you're not going to eat all day again and then not all night again. So it's a 30 or 36 hour fast. That's actually quite a bit more difficult. So fast like lunch to lunch or breakfast to breakfast, something like that. Um, it's a, Christians have done this for ages. Now, some of you have uh, dietary concerns that make it really not practical for you to fast from food in the traditional way. So you can fast from other things, entertainment, um, social media, um, being a jerk. <laughs> One time I fasted from sarcasm. I almost died. <laughs> Like I'll do that again. (laughs) Huh? So then lastly, um, one other way that we at Artisan tend to observe these holy seasons, including Lent, is that we have lots of scripture reading and lots of uh, reflections from the great thinkers of church history. One of our values as a church is roots. We want to be deeply rooted in the historic Christian faith, and so we try to expose ourselves to the teaching and writing of um, uh, Christian leaders and teachers uh, all through history, and the Jewish ones before that, actually. So um, we have uh, much more scripture reading during this season than we probably typically would have. Uh, specifically, we use the Revised Common Lectionary. So I'm giving this kind of like, it's all informational right now. We'll dig into the, the kind of heart stuff in a minute, but uh, I want you to know where we're at with this. So the lectionary is simply a collection of biblical texts that is uh, assigned to churches to use year-round, and many churches do use it year-round. We tend to use it only during a few seasons of the year, but each week of the church year is assigned uh, generally four scripture readings, a psalm, which we read at the beginning of our service, an Old Testament reading, uh, a New Testament reading, one of the epistles, usually a letter um, to one of the early Christian churches, and then a gospel reading, a reading from one of the books that tells the story of Jesus. So those four readings are assigned to be done uh, each Sunday, and it goes on a three-year cycle. And after three years, if you do it every week, you, you, you see not all of Scripture, but a, you pretty much get the whole story of Scripture really, really well. I often, as you know, if you've been around and heard me talk about this before, recommend this for you. If you're trying to read the Bible devotionally and don't know where to start, the lectionary is a great way to kind of give you a, a broad-based um, exposure to Scripture. And it's probably better than just opening the Bible to page one and starting and see how long you stay awake. Um, So you can use it that way. But we do lots more scripture reading, which means I talk a little bit less, um, except when I do the readings, which I will do today. Um, And the future will involve our uh, developing liturgy team in in having these readings done uh, by other voices, which I think is important too. But we do a lot more readings from Scripture. In fact, today's entire sermon uh, is really just a structure, a skeleton to, to prop up the readings from Scripture and a couple readings from the Church Fathers, which I probably shouldn't have told you, but um, no, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, all original thoughts from me, and you will really enjoy it. <laughs> um, I would like now to pause for a moment of prayer, and it's just a really brief prayer that I will read to you from um, an old worship book called The Glazian Sacramentary, which is really fun to say. So would you pause just for a moment um, and open our hearts to God with this prayer. Grant to us, O Almighty God, 
that by the annual exercise of Lenten observances, we may advance in knowledge of the mystery of Christ and follow his mind by conduct worthy of our calling. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So, we have four readings each week, and we read the psalm already, so I have three readings that I'll read to you this morning and talk briefly about each of them. And again, these are, these are assigned to uh, the churches to, to be used. So the really neat thing is that every church in the city, every church in the country, every church around the world that uses the lectionary is looking at these same texts today. So there's thousands and thousands of Christians around the globe looking at these texts that we're looking at today, which is really a neat thing. So the first reading uh, that I want to look at is the Old Testament reading. It's from the book of Genesis. And if you'd like to follow along, uh, I have put page numbers on the screen for these red Bibles, which are floating around in the room. If you brought your own, you're on your own to find it, but Genesis 2 should be fairly easy to find. This is a passage we've actually looked at very recently. We looked at it during the second week of our previous series, Faith at Work, and uh, so it will be familiar to you if you were here for that. It's Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and then it jumps ahead to chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. This is one of the stories of creation in the the Bible. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. In chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So this is the story of what is known as the fall of man, and uh, we, we've talked before, and I won't go into it now, about the, the use of the word man. Um, it's not just a gender thing, which kind of gets confused depending on how you interpret things, but the fall of man, by which I mean the fall of all humankind. Uh, this is the story that kind of represents our descent into sin and rebellion and disobedience um, to God. And it tells the story of how sin begins to damage the world. Now, in our New Testament reading today, which is the the second reading I'll give you, uh, we have a passage where the Apostle Paul lifts up this story that we've just read of the fall and compares the sin of Adam um, and how that affected the whole world to the redemption that's offered in Jesus Christ and how that affects the whole world. Um, So as you're turning to Romans chapter 5, or you can just listen, it's totally fine, what I will do is apologize now because I'm going to break my main 
hermeneutical rule, you know, hermeneutics, that discipline of interpreting the Bible and understanding it. You use that word a lot, right? That's what they told you in seminary. Connect with your audience. Speak their language. Hermeneutical. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Greek for egghead, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> So one of my hermeneutical rules is that what is the therefore, therefore? You've heard me say this a million times if you've been an artist in a long time. So you can't just, it's not quite fair to start a passage of scripture with the word therefore because obviously that word connects what you're about to read to what you've just read. And if you haven't just read it, then you're going to be in the dark. The problem is with the book of Romans, like every paragraph starts with therefore. And if we went to all back through the therefores, we'd be at Romans 1 and we just don't have time for that. So I'm going to break my rule this morning. I apologize. I'm going to read... Well, that would be the other way to cheat the system, Grant. Yes, you're right. We could start later in the passage, but, um, or earlier in the passage. You're right. You're right. But if you look, Grant, at, at verse 6, that's one thing. But if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, how does it begin? Aha. Uh-huh. So, see, we have a problem. We have a problem. You almost tricked the pastor, though. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that, because I didn't. Um. So, verse uh, 12, Romans 5, 12 through 19. All right, here we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law. Now, he's speaking about the law of Moses, and it's, it's kind of heady stuff, but we're going to just plow through it for now. But sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many." And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ." And here's another, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, so this is very dense theological stuff. Um, But if I were to sum it up in one sentence, Paul is simply saying to the Roman Christians that Jesus is the solution to the problem with the world that began with Adam. Romans 5 offers the solution to Genesis 3. Does that make sense enough? Now, some of the theology nerds here, um, and I know that you're here, I don't want you to get bogged down with the idea of original sin, capital O, capital S, original sin, that idea that uh, all of us are born um, from the time we're 
delivered in the hospital room, um, totally depraved and sinful and in need of redemption because of the sin of Adam. That's it's a very brief and maybe slightly not uh, fine enough points on it for some of you definition of original sin. But I don't want you to get bogged down with that. And biology nerds, I know you're in the room too. I don't want you to get bogged down in the idea of, of the historical Adam and whether one man and woman could have actually um, parented the entire human race. Uh, spoiler alert, they didn't. Um, biologically speaking. But again, I don't want you to get bogged down with that. What I want you to do is look for the simpler message. Uh, Philosophy nerds, you might think of Occam's razor, right? The Occam's razor of hermeneutics. Again, I'm really connecting with the audience this morning, right? (laughs) Very simply, the bit about Adam is there to point people to Jesus. That's it. Paul's writing to people who understand the story of Adam and Eve, by the way. Seems to leave her out of it conveniently in this case. Um, And he's using that story, which is part of their their shared historical understanding and vocabulary, to point people to Jesus and to explain what the work of Jesus is. That's it. Now, I don't want you to think I'm being too um, uh, flippant here. Like that these, these finer points of, of interpretation, um, theology and, and biology and all the rest of it, that those things don't matter and that they're not worth thinking about. That is not my position whatsoever. But sometimes I think dwelling on those finer points is really nothing more than an excuse. It's a distraction that allows us to avoid facing up to the real issue, which is our own sin. For example, if you want to think about that doctrine of original sin, sometimes thinking about sin that way allows us to say, you know, abstractly, I ain't done nothing that ain't common to all men, right? I don't know, the sinners are from the South, that's just the way I think of them, right? Like, there's nothing nothing uniquely bad about me. Well, maybe not uniquely, (laughs) But don't, don't, don't let doctrine be a cop-out for dealing with your own crap, right? It's a theological term. Because no, during Lent, what were we saying? The problem lies with me. So for a final reading of the day, I want to look at the gospel passage, which is really a wonderful story that kind of ties all this stuff together. It's the story of the temptation of Jesus. And um, one of the traditions during these High Holy Seasons uh, for, the, for the readings that we do is that we stand together for the reading of the Gospel. So would you stand together as I read this last passage from Matthew chapter 4? And uh, Elliot, for what it's worth, would you, would you fire up that, um, that artwork again? so that visual people can be looking at that rather than these words as I read the story of the temptation of Jesus. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And you can just leave that up, I think, probably till the end of this talk here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, 
And here he's quoting the Old Testament Scriptures. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and here the tempter is quoting Scripture, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. All right, you can sit down. There's so much I could say about this passage. This story tells us, firstly, that Jesus bore the same temptation that, that we do. One of the church fathers, I think it was Athanasius, who said, that which he has not assumed, taken on himself, he has not redeemed. Jesus was fully human and dealt with all of the same problems that come with being human, the ones that we deal with, which I think is... When you think about it, not only a, a beautiful miracle, but quite, quite a comfort in a way. And Jesus was tempted, just as you are tempted and, and I am tempted. And I know that you are facing temptations of all kinds of sort every day. You face the temptation to take advantage of situations or people, to get ahead, You face the temptation to be selfish in your relationships, romantic, platonic, and otherwise. You face the temptation to exploit other people. You face the temptation to give in to the easy choice of complaint and negativity. And on and on and on. I don't know the particular ones that each one of you is dealing with, of course. I could tell you some that I deal with. The point is that we all deal with them and that Jesus himself was tempted. And I think in the temptation of Jesus, we see an example and a warning. And I'll do this really quickly. The example is how to respond to temptation. How does Jesus respond to, the, to, to these temptations? What does he do? He quotes scripture back at the devil. I love this conversation um, between these two, uh, these two people. The tempter offers him food after he's been fasting for 40 days, which, by the way, is um, possible to do. I know people who have done this. Um, famished. And the tempter suggests, use your special son of God privilege to turn these stones into bread and feed yourself. And Jesus just responds with Scripture. And then the tempter uses Scripture at him, and Jesus trumps his Scripture. You don't want to get in a Scripture rap battle with Jesus. Right? <laughs> because he will drop that mic on you. Theodore of Heraclea said, The first Adam sinned by eating, Christ prevailed by self-control. Did you notice that the temptation in both cases was originally to food? But not just by self-control, it was his deep knowledge of the scriptures to answer the arguments of the tempter. 
Here, let me read you something from the Church Fathers again really quickly. This is Gregory the Great, as you know, one of the Cappadocian Fathers, right? (laughs) I'm in a mood today, I'm telling you what. When the Lord was tempted by the devil, he answered him with the commands of sacred scripture. By the word that he was, now this is a capital W, referring to John's, prologue to John's gospel that calls Jesus the word that was with God in the beginning and was God. By the word that he was, he could have easily plunged his tempter into the abyss. But he did not reveal the power of his might, but he only brought forth the precepts of Scripture. Why? This was to give us an example of his patience, so that as often as we suffer something from vicious persons, we should be aroused to teach rather than to exact revenge. I'm not sure it was Jesus was attempting to teach the devil anything there, but you get what he's saying. We should know how to use Scripture because it's one way and perhaps the best way to resist temptation. So if you don't know any Scripture, I would just humbly suggest that you start to get to know it a little bit better. Read it for the first time if you never have. Read it again and again if you've read it over and over already. Memorize it if you've never done that. All right. I'm going to come back. That's another sermon. But. So there's the example. Jesus gives the example of quoting Scripture to respond to temptation. But there's also a warning. And the warning is this. And this, I think, is where I want to really drive this home for you today. The warning is watch how the progression of temptation goes in this story. It starts out with what? Jesus is famished. He's hungry. So it starts out with the temptation to food. Poignant during this season of Lent when I've already commended to you uh, the discipline of fasting as useful and beneficial. But it doesn't stay with food for Jesus, and I promise you it won't stay with food for you if you try to fast. First of all, it's turn these stones into bread. Fill your belly, Jesus. When that doesn't work, he says, throw yourself down. Climb up to the temple and the angels will carry you away. And actually, I have no doubt that they would have done that. I think Satan was speaking truth in that moment. Just as he spoke some truth to Eve and said, you're not really going to die right away. How many of us would like to escape the troubles of the world? Just, and Jesus knew what was coming, I think, for himself. It, it must have been a very real temptation. Yeah, you know what? Being born away on the wings of the angels, that sounds pretty good. Actually, it sounds like half of the hymns of the uh, American colonial church, too. (laughs) And then the temptation goes to power. I'll give you all of these kingdoms and then very quickly to idolatry if you bow down to me. So like in the span of a two-minute conversation, we get from a hungry belly to bowing down and, and worshiping the tempter himself. We get from a human being who hasn't eaten food in 40 days to the God of the universe bowing to Satan. (laughs) That's, I mean, this is an extreme example. But let me promise you, if you try fasting and your belly is empty, even like in the American sense of the word empty belly, right? Like, I could use some Cheez-Its right now, right? (laughs) Really, man... Um, it will go so quickly from a hungry belly to something else. Richard Foster said, this is one of the most true spiritual things I've ever read. He said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control you. 
I have found that to be true so many times in my life. If I'm fasting, my belly's hurt, I get irritable, and suddenly I'm snapping at somebody. Like, oh, I have a, I have a patience problem. I don't have, a, I don't have a hunger problem, I have a patience problem. You know? or, or some other appetite of my body will like, flare up. Oh, look at this. Oh, thank you, Abel. <laughs> For those of you listening on podcast, my son just bought me a, brought me a box of Cheez-Its. Wow. No, he's not fasting from sarcasm either. You're right. <laughs> oh, train up a child in the way he should go, and he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay. You try me on this. Try fasting this week and tell me if it doesn't almost immediately drive you into some other temptation. That's the warning that comes with this story of Jesus. All right, so as we travel through the season of Lent, remember that the problem um, lies with you and with me. And I want to conclude with one more reading from the early church that will serve, I think, as a nice bridge from these ideas that we've talked about to the sacrament of communion. This is... um, Oh, look, it's another one of the Cappadocian fathers. It's uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Hear these words, and then the table will be open. And uh, we've run long. I assume that's my fault, and I apologize. Um, Seems to be a trend lately, and I'm going to try to rein it in. But we'll uh, open our table following this, and if you'd like to receive prayer, you can receive prayer over here, and we'll continue in worship and bring the kids back in. and uh, It'll be a wonderful time. Hear these words from Gregory of Nyssa. Those who have been tricked into taking poison offset its harmful effect by another drug. The remedy, moreover, just like the poison, has to enter the system so that its remedial effect may thereby spread through the whole body. Similarly, having tasted the poison, that is, the fruit that dissolved our nature, we were necessarily in need of something to reunite it. Such a remedy had to enter into us so that it might, by its counteraction, undo the harm the body had already encountered from the poison. And what is the remedy? Nothing else than the body that proved itself superior to death and became the source of our life. It is that body to which I now invite you to come the body of Christ himself, the blood shed for the remission of sins. Uh, And you can come, if you're following Jesus, to receive his body and blood, this sacrament of the church. And uh, we think of it often as spiritual food. I talk about it as food for your souls almost every week when I introduce communion. Today we're thinking of it as the antidote to a poison, um, thanks to Gregory of Nyssa. So come and receive the antidote. Um, receive the grace of Christ, and let's continue to worship him together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.